You are listening to the What's the Proof podcast, where we seek to help doctors and other clinicians incorporate the best available evidence into their everyday clinical decision-making. The content of this podcast is meant for educational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized medical advice. The views and opinions expressed are those of the host and guest, and no content on this podcast has been approved or sanctioned by Atrium Health. Welcome, everybody, back to What's the Proof? I'm Bobby Scott, and with me is Sandy Robertson. Uh, Dawn is unfortunately uh, not with us this month, but uh, hopefully she'll be back next time. She has too many patients to see, right? Too many important things to do. Unlike uh, us. Unlike just us. sit around yeah. and talk about insomnia drugs. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I wanted to start out, Sandy, I know we're talking about insomnia today, but wanted to follow up on the last podcast where we were talking about probiotics for the prevention of C. diff and antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Mm -hmm. Bobby, I would just like to say I think you officially like to stir up trouble. Apparently so. I well, think so. So it really wasn't me. It was a listener, right? Okay. So it was. It, <laughs> it was. One of our uh, faculty listeners uh, decided to go up the chain and explore whether using uh, probiotics for C. diff prevention would be a good QI initiative for our hospital, and that led to some conversations with our antibiotic stewardship program. Yes. And Sandy, I got to tell you, I was surprised at the strength of the opinions over this topic. I guess they have debated this very extensively at our Little hospital Little did we already. know. Yeah. So we're not, we're not important enough to be included in those committees. No, we, are, we were not privy <laughs> to that information. Um, but, you know, ultimately what they came down to was that uh, even though they've looked at it a bunch of times, looked at all the data, um, because our local data shows that our patients are at low risk for developing hospital-acquired C. diff. Right. Therefore, they didn't think they would likely benefit mm-hmm. uh, and was not going to be recommended as a standard of care, which I would agree with. I would, too. Our numbers, when, when that came out in the email, I was very pleased with that, that number. Yeah, and they suggested you know focusing on risk mod- risk factor modification if possible, so avoiding antibiotics, PPIs. But I guess what I was really surprised about was is the strength and confidence at which it was claimed that probiotics were not, not helpful, and there right. was no data supporting it, which I think was inaccurate. I would agree with you there, and I think it was a timing of when these meta-analyses were published and when the IDSA guidelines were published. And so it's just simply, unless you're really looking at all of this data, which let's face it, it's difficult to do. I think it is hard to know exactly what the latest evidence shows. Right. Yeah. You mentioned the IDSA guidelines and and in 2017, those were put out and they said that Mm -hmm. there was insufficient data to recommend Mm -hmm. probiotics for primary prevention of C. diff outside of clinical trials. Right. And they raised the concern that some of the studies that influenced their meta-analyses had a much higher C. diff incidence in the placebo arms than would typically be expected. Right. And that means, you know, potentially biasing the results towards benefit of probiotics, which was reasonable. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things that the Cochrane authors actually noted as well. And so they substratified their analysis based on the baseline risk for C. diff, because they recognized that that potential bias was there. Right. 
And so what they found out was that the benefit for C. diff prevention was seen mainly in patients with a baseline risk of greater than 5%, which I think we said in our podcast. We did. We did. And therefore, if our local incidence is less than that, then obviously it is not going to be a good intervention for a standard of care in our particular hospital. Right, right. And so you also have to look at, you know, the harm reduction model and what are the harms of doing that? Even if your numbers are lower than that, what harm could you potentially be causing in an immunocompetent? And I just, I do want to just throw that out there again. We're talking about immunocompetent patients um, for the use of probiotics, even when the, the risk is less than 5%. We know it's low quality evidence in that situation, but right. I, still, I still would argue that it's a safe therapy to try. Yeah, I mean, in, in the 32 randomized controlled trials in the Cochrane Review, the harms that were identified in immunocompetent people were minimal, so right. actually the adverse events were more frequent in the control groups than they were in the in the probiotic group. Right, at the very least, you know, this is becoming the standard in the U.S. to have very low numbers of C. diff um, during hospitalization. I think we need to have some randomized controlled trials. Yeah, absolutely. I think, mm-hmm. you know, if, Let's answer the a question. A hospital like ours would be right. great to do that. I think so, too. I, yeah, I wish they would. But, um, come find us. Yeah. Grant, so, grant money, come find yeah, us. Please bring us some money to help us do that study, <laughs> not for our own personal pockets, but no. for the study. You know? Exactly. Um, yeah, I think I definitely need to chew on it a bit more. It seems that until we get more studies on this, it's probably going to be a contentious topic for sure. I think so. But and that's okay. Yeah. And I think... I, I just what I didn't understand was the which is how strongly opposed some of the people in the conversation were right. against it. Right. You know the IDSA guideline, for example, said that there was insufficient data to recommend the probiotics. However, it was recommended that hospitals implement an antibiotic stewardship program as a good practice recommendation. And as far as I can tell, the best evidence for antibiotic stewardship programs, specifically in C. diff prevention, mm-hmm. is at best equivalent in strength to the evidence for probiotics, but probably more appropriately classified as lower in quality. Right. I would agree. I'm going to chalk that strong statement up to the fact that it was via email. Yeah. And uh, let's just assume that it wasn't meant to be so strong. Exactly. Strongly worded. That's yeah. right. Anyway, if anybody, any of our listeners have thoughts about it, go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. But if you have thoughts and comments, please send us an email. I'd love to hear what what you think about it. Absolutely, because I think with every episode, we end up learning more, don't we? We do. And speaking of learning more, Bobby, you ready for today's topic? I can't wait. Oh, it's one of my favorites. I can't wait to talk about medications for insomnia. We have a, a large amount of evidence here, right? A whole lot. A whole lot. Well, let's start out by, you know, what brought on this topic. Not only do we talk about it all the time with our residents, and I struggle as a pharmacist to know the safe, the balance between when to recommend prescribing and not prescribing for our faculty here. But last month, a study came out in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine that found from 2013 to 2018, the use of medications for insomnia, whether on or off-label, decreased by 31%. And that I was really pleasantly surprised by that. And in fact, the use of in patients greater than 80 years of age dropped by 86%. That's huge. That is. Yeah, and I have to commend the prescribers for doing that. It's thought to be secondary to the recent, the recent initiatives to de-prescribe medications. We know they have lots of concerning adverse effects. 
we know that they could potentially be efficacious, but they come with a lot of baggage. I think we would all say that anecdotally we see that in our patient population. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah I'm not sure that any of us feel super confident and comfortable when we prescribe them. You know, we almost feels like no. maybe we're a little hesitant when uh, we have right, to do it. Right, I'm, I'm right there with you in recommending. So um, what, what are, you know, what's the data out there for insomnia? Well, the most current clinical practice guidelines in the United States recommend, not surprising, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That is the first-line treatment for chronic insomnia, which is, by the way, defined as insomnia symptoms lasting three months or longer. People, when they come to you after truly three months of insomnia, they're pretty desperate, which I do think makes it more difficult for us to talk about CBT. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's probably worth noting that we're not talking about acute insomnia, which, you know, often are triggered by life events right. or, you know, circumstances that are often going to resolve. Mm-hmm. So usually people like that, you know, they're going to get better. Right, right. And, and just know that this CBT for insomnia is traditionally offered by specialty trained providers. I mean, this is a big deal. And I've read a little bit about it. I'm very impressed. The data with it suggests that it is highly effective. It does come with a price tag. And unfortunately, in a lot of areas, those specialty trained providers are not readily available. Would you say that's correct? Yes. Unfortunately, we live in the Charlotte metro area. We do have a couple of options mm-hmm. here, but in smaller towns, it's not going to be It's easy. not going to be. So once again, this is a great benefit of having a very solid primary care base where this is gonna fall on the primary care provider. Um, we have lots of smartphone apps, there are lots of online resources. So I do think that with appropriate training, PCPs can adequately give some version of CBT. And I know that we do that, we train that pretty well here. Just one more way we provide value. I think so. <laughs> but naturally, because not every, not every patient is going to either be able to correctly perform this CBT or be even agreeable to trying it, Uh, And because not every patient will benefit, I will say that I do believe there is a role for medications for insomnia, and I'd like to at least review what we have. That's okay? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so let's take a look at the evidence. So, Bobby, how effective are these medications in treating insomnia? Well, the first point that we should make is that the evidence for benefit in medications is generally of low to moderate quality. Mm -hmm. Most of these are industry-sponsored trials, and they always have to be cautious with those. Right. Study durations are most commonly four weeks or less, with only a small number extending out to three to six months. So we are not talking about multi-year trials here. Right. There are very few comparative studies. So drawing any conclusions about which medications are better is very difficult. Many trials do not report on global patient-oriented outcomes like sleep quality and quality of life and often focus on disease-oriented outcomes such as those measured by polysomnography, which are fancy sleep studies that maybe provide some data there. Right. Uh, And additionally, most of the trials demonstrate a very large placebo response, so relative differences in outcomes as a result of the medication compared to placebo are generally small. So you are not making me feel good about the quality of this evidence. No, not great. I said we had a lot, but it wasn't great. No, no, it is not. You just basically said, you gave me every negative that could come from 
a meta-analysis or systematic review, correct? Pretty much. <laughs> okay, well, moving forward. Yeah, so the, <laughs> there are two major guidelines that have been put out in recent years. Uh, one is by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. That was put out in 2017. Mm -hmm. And then the American College of Physicians uh, put out one in 2016. These are based on systematic reviews and meta-analyses conducted by those groups, and they represent the highest level of evidence that we have currently. Now, we don't have time on the podcast today to discuss these in thorough detail, but we will try to concisely summarize the data for you. Okay, I appreciate you doing that for me. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. The earlier ACP guideline only found sufficient evidence to present benefits in four total medications for use in the general population. These are ezopiclone, all forms of zolpidem, suvorexin, and doxepin. Interesting. I don't know that I would have picked those four specifically. Yeah, yeah I mean, obviously, zolpidem is very right. commonly yes. used. In, yes. Yeah, but yeah, this is a little surprising. A little bit. All of these were based on low-quality evidence, except for the standard form of zolpidem and suvorexin, which they graded as moderate quality. Hmm. And relative to placebo, the effects were generally small. You fall asleep 6 to 19 minutes faster, sleep a total of 11 to 48 minutes longer, and spend 5 to 16 minutes less time awake after you fall asleep. And for patients older than 55, the evidence is even more limited. Hmm. The outcomes are roughly in the same range as in the general population, but the evidence is lesser. Okay. Well, Bobby, are you impressed with the minute reduction? Not particularly. I mean, you got to consider, too, that these are relative to placebo. So placebo right. has a pretty strong effect. So they I mean, if you add it to that, I mm -hmm. mean, you're looking up to 30, 40 minutes, even, you know, maybe longer, maybe longer, right. even up to an hour. But right. you know, if you can do that with placebo, it's right. not really the medicine that's doing it. So that's where it becomes hard to swallow. It does. It does. Now, the 2017 AASM guidelines also found sufficient evidence for benefit in only a limited number of medications. They broke it down by medicines to use for sleep onset and sleep maintenance insomnia. Okay, makes sense. So for sleep onset insomnia, they suggest using ezopiclone, xaloplon, zolpidem, temazepam, and triazolam. So now we have some benzodiazepines in there. Okay. And for sleep maintenance, they recommend ezopiclone again, zolpidem, doxepin, temazepam, and suvorexin. And regarding outcomes, the numbers are not really remarkably different from those that are in the ACP guidelines. They're very similar. I could go through all of them, but it'd take an hour. Okay. But the numbers are the, are the same or similar? Yeah, relatively, roughly the same. Okay. I would just like to say for the record how impressed I am at your pronunciation of these words. It took a lot of practice. I call them the Z-drugs for that reason. <laughs> so much easier. Or the brand names. But we're not going to do that on We're the not going to do that today, but I, I am very, very impressed. I would just like to say that for the record. What I find most interesting about the AASM guidelines when I was reviewing them is the list of medications that they say you should not use which I will admit to you that I have been guilty of recommending um, to both family, friends, and in a professional capacity. So do you want me to list these for you? Yeah, let's Because let's obviously there probably are some that were not on the list from people for our listeners. Yeah. Okay. I think people are going to be surprised. I know. First one is trazodone. So 
data is only from one study. It's very limited. It did not show a significant improvement in um, insomnia scores, and it's associated with significant increase in harms compared to placebo. So most notably, it was headache and somnolence. So AASM does not recommend trazodone. Yeah. Um, number two, wait for it, melatonin. Based on three very low quality studies, showed no significant benefit. Now, placebo effect. I know, I know, but it, that placebo effect really does work for a lot of patients. Yeah, Do you and it makes so much sense because it's a natural chemical that your brain produces, it does. and you know, but. It does. It, I would like to, to say for the record that it is difficult to find significant harms with oh, melatonin. Yeah, for sure. So again, if I have a patient or a friend or family that says melatonin works every time like a charm, I am not going to keep taking that, that melatonin. Absolutely. absolutely. And um, third is diphenhydramine. That again, based on two low quality studies, showed no improvement relative to placebo. And and I'm not we all know the the harms of first-generation antihistamines in the yeah. elderly, but we also know that if you're younger and diphenhydramine makes you sleepy and it works, it would be hard for me to to give you strong recommendations against it, dry mouth. I mean, there are some side effects, but yeah. according to AASM, trazodone, melatonin, and diphenhydramine are on the list of drugs not to recommend for insomnia. Indeed. I know. So when it comes to potential harms, I'm always the person, right? You have to go to about all the significant adverse effects. We really do worry about the sedative hypnotics. These Z drugs, um, as you described earlier, we, we worry about in addition to things like just simple somnolence the next day. We have data that actually does show daytime impairment, cognitive impairment, we have seen some increase in falls and fractures in the elderly. It depends on the study. A lot of these are large retrospective studies. Increase in injuries, increase in depression. Um, there are some things that we really do have to be concerned about with the Z drugs, with the sedative hypnotics. And then clearly we all see this. Rebound insomnia with sudden discontinuation. There's a reason why these, these medications were only studied for two weeks when yeah. they first came out. And it makes it really hard to get patients off of them when it's Absolutely. only going to be a short-term treatment. It's a taper. Yeah. Yeah. I tell patients, you're going to have to taper, and you're going to have to have some sleepless nights. That's the bottom line. And you have to just power through. If you, if you want to no longer take this medication, which I recommend, this is what you're going to have to, quote, suffer through. Not many people can say it's very easy. Yeah, and it also makes it challenging because we know that they probably shouldn't be on these long-term and their concerns for harms and, you know, their rebound insomnia is keeping them from being willing to try to taper off of it. It right. just adds an extra layer it of complexity. Really does. It's hard. It's hard. Now, I do feel like I need to at least mention this, and I'm going to admit to you that this is something that I learned in preparing for this podcast. There is an association, now stay with me, uh, it was published in 2012 in BMJ. It was a large retrospective cohort study, but an association with increased mortality and increased cancer risk for patients taking the sedative hypnotics that are, quote, in the Z class of medications. Did you know this? Yeah, this is a new one for me, too. And I think it also includes benzodiazepines as well. Oh, yes, it does. You're exactly right. 
sorry about that. So we have to add in a couple of those as well. Just to give you a little bit of the data, there were over 10,000 patients that were they recorded taking these medications, these classes, and then 23,000 controls. And they actually had pretty good homogeneity with regards to the patient populations. They studied them for two and a half years. And we won't go into the numbers, but there was a higher risk of mortality and um, cancer when they compared the groups. And any dose of the sedative hypnotics or the benzo studied was associated with increased risk of mortality. And it went up to a five-fold increased risk. And there are all kinds of postulated reasons as to why this is. And I think we could all agree with depression, suicidality, accidents, daytime impairment. A lot of that makes sense, but I, I think they kind of dive into other reasons as well. But then also, um, there was an increased risk of cancer. Um, and it was, even if you took 18 doses in a year, which a lot of, that's not a lot. Yeah, not a lot at all. So again, this is a large retrospective study. It only shows um, correlation, not causation. But I just felt like we needed to at least tell our, our listeners. Yeah, I'm surprised that that's not more commonly known. That seems like yeah. a really important bit of information. Well, we do talk about correlations with our patients about other medications, and sometimes we're trying to give them all the information to maybe sway them in one way or another. But this is something that if they were to Google you know, these medications, they might would find this association. So perhaps we need to mention it. Yeah, for sure. And unfortunately, our randomized controlled trials were short term, so we don't have long term data on safety. And many of the times they did not adequately report adverse events. So this is really the best we have in Mm -hmm. terms of the harms. They've always been retrospective studies that are observational, but that's all we got. Right, right. So Bobby, why don't you recap these major guidelines for me? Yeah. And and first thing I want to mention, though, is that Even though we didn't go into detail on that study, all of the references are in the show notes, so please check them out, read them for yourself, uh, verify what we're saying. Absolutely. Call us out on it. Yeah. We're wrong. So uh, to recap, the two major guidelines give weak recommendations for the use of these medications. So azopiclone, sulpidem, and temazepam for both sleep onset and sleep maintenance insomnia. Mm-hmm. Zaloplon and triazolam, mainly for sleep onset insomnia. Doxepin and suvorexant, mainly for sleep maintenance insomnia. And again, do not use trazodone, melatonin, or diphenhydramine. And there are a few others that were listed in there, but those are the three that are most commonly used that I think people may want to stop recommending. Right, right. And not that we have to say it again, but maybe. You know, this is weak evidence. Um, it's demo- the demonstrated results are only modestly better than placebo, so remember that. Um, when they also come with significant concerns of harm and when we're prescribing and then we have to deprescribe, it becomes a problem. So these are the reasons why, in general, I would say this recent study shows less and less prescribing of these medications for insomnia. And we don't have time in this podcast, but the cognitive behavioral therapy, it really works. It just takes a little bit of time and effort. Would yeah. you agree? Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I'm going to editorialize a little bit here. Sure. <laughs> so I, I think our residents often struggle with this because they, they ask me about this. And, you know, unfortunately, insomnia medications, those are often an oh, by the way request from patients. You get oh, that yeah. as you're walking out the door. 
And I think it's really imperative that we avoid making decisions on using these medications based on a two or three minute conversation while you're leaving the room. Mm -hmm. We are just not doing right by patients if we aren't talking about the potential benefits and harms and likely the majority of patients can improve with behavioral interventions. Sleep hygiene is a good place to start for most people, but if you are treating insomnia, I would really encourage you to read about other behavioral techniques that are out there, such as sleep restriction, stimulus control. For example, one simple sleep restriction intervention has been shown to improve insomnia with a number needed to treat of only four. That's right. And there's evolving evidence for meditation, um, mindfulness, mindfulness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, these are things that, again, it's not completely easy to do on the first day, but if you, and we have so many apps and so many resources that I do think that if we spend some time with our patients, and it can't be a, oh, by the way, as you're leaving, can I just get my Zolpidem? Yeah, tip, so here's a little thing that I usually do, uh, because it's really helpful uh, in following up on these patients is when it's an oh, by the way request. Mm-hmm. I usually listen to what they have to say a little bit Mm -hmm. and, you know, I I explain we really need to spend a whole visit on this because this is really important. There's a lot of things we need to talk about. And then I give them a sleep diary to complete on the way out. And so that gives them uh, something helpful to bring back to the next visit that will really, you know, be very useful when you're trying to implement these behavioral techniques. Is that pretty well received? Yeah, actually, it does pretty well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes people don't come back. Right. Um, but, and hopefully that's because their insomnia got better and it was just an acute thing, but, um, but when they do, like I had one recently and I'm able to make some really good behavioral interventions and hopefully she'll get better, but, um, but yeah, so if you're interested in that sleep restriction intervention, you can find a link to the study in the show Mm -hmm. notes. So take a look at it. Oh yeah. I've tried it before and it is effective. Yeah. You just have to be patient with it. So just to summarize again, the, the two guidelines that you um, reviewed, those are at least five years old now. So um, let's just briefly go over any new data that's out there. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know if you have any experience with the, um, the dual orexin receptor antagonist or the orexin medications. Do you have much experience with that? I have not prescribed any yet of mm-hmm. my own, but right. I have seen patients that have been prescribed them by other providers. Right, right. They are FDA approved. Um, There's three of them on the market now. And so Subarexin, of course, was included in the guidelines. That's the first one. But now we have um, Limbarexin, which um, in an industry-sponsored Sunrise 2 trial, um, so just remember that it is a small trial and it's um, industry-sponsored, it did show improvements in the onset of sleep by about 25 minutes to 74 minutes of total sleep time compared to placebo. And these benefits were seen over 12 months. So it wasn't just a four-week study, so I have to hand it to them for going out a year. Yeah, so these newer good. studies, I think, are are doing better. They're, mm-hmm. they're improving in how they're conducting so. their studies. I, I think, think so. We're getting better at it. And the latest Erexin antagonist is Daredirexin, approved earlier this year. Efficacy is based on two industry-sponsored trials, which showed... Um, sleep improvement compared to placebo, about 30 minutes in sleep latency, and an hour in total sleep time. This medication is interesting because it was designed to work quickly, but also to have a half-life that would lead to an 80% um, reduction in the medication by morning. So it's, it's a little bit more of a designer drug. Um, the hope is that it would reduce daytime impairment from residual uh, medication effects. 
The studies did show statistically significant improvement in the scores on daytime functioning questionnaire. However, there's small changes and they may not be clinically relevant. It is worth noting that it seemed to be very well tolerated. Um, there were more adverse effects that led to discontinuation in the placebo group. And the most common adverse event, which is, you know, we say this with a lot of really safe medication, is nasopharyngitis and headache. <laughs> I think you can say that safely with any medication. Yes. So I don't know. Maybe we've landed on something here. Again, I'm not promoting it, but it could potentially be promising. I'm always open um, to, to newer, safer medications. These come with a price tag. I looked you know, at one of the websites yesterday for cash only, and it's over $500 a month. Oh, so. my. Oh, yeah. The, the sleep will cost you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm intrigued by these medicines. I, I think hopefully we'll see some more data to come out to corroborate some of these industry-sponsored trials. But I hope so. Yeah, they, they look pretty interesting. They're, I'm going to leave it at that. Interesting. Yeah. I don't want to say, t- you know, anything too positive or too negative. Right. Wanna, yeah, toe the line on that. Yep. And with that note, that's the end of the episode today. We don't have any additional segments because we just had so much to talk mm-hmm. about today. Maybe, think- t- maybe tonight the listeners can put the pot- this podcast on while they're listening. Yeah, they can right to sleep. Can help them go right to sleep. <laughs> yeah, with the nice soothing voices and you know, I don't know really dull data. I think so. I think so. so. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you to all our listeners. Uh, please uh, let us know. Keep in touch. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. And again, all the show notes have our references, so feel free to check them out. And we'll see you next time. Good night. Good night.